just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Ah, yes, it's another episode of MLB Morning Coffee from the Ocean Avenue Studios here in San Francisco. Thanks for coming along for the ride. My name is Greg Mraz. I am your host as per usual. A couple of reminders to write a review, leave a rating, and subscribe. Really want to give a shout-out to the last guy who left a one-star review, and I'm going to get into that in just a moment. But if you feel compelled to leave a one-star review, fine, do that if it so compels you. But if you want to leave a five-star review... That would greatly be appreciated. So appreciate everybody that has left 24 five-star reviews and three one-star reviews. So basically that just tells me you either love me or you hate me. So most of you guys like me. Most of you think that I'm okay. A couple of you don't like me. And I'll get into that in just a moment. And it's in a reaction, I would say, to the last two episodes I did. I did not do one for Saturday morning because I wanted to do a weekend whip around There was just so much baseball going on two nights ago, and I just wasn't actually feeling that well early Saturday morning, so I decided to put it off and just have it be one full Sunday episode, which is fine. And my second reminder to you is to make sure that you tell your friends about the show, have them click in, log in, listen in, download on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the one-star review that I got was in response to the episode I did in regards to the Major League Baseball player protests and my reaction to everything going on with Jacob Blake up in Wisconsin. So let me put this out there because I feel like a couple of people that have listened to this show need to hear it. I don't want to have to get into politics on a baseball show But we have reached the point in our society's conjecture to where we cannot separate sports and politics or sports and societal issues. For those of you that have listened to this show, I lean to the left. I am a Democrat. I am a liberal. I have been my whole life and more than likely will still be one by the time I die, hopefully 50 years from now or longer than that. If it's longer than 50 years from now, that means... I'll have made it to 80, which I'll consider to be an accomplishment. I don't want to hide how I feel because I don't want to be dishonest with you. There are a lot of times on past episodes when I could have gone a little bit further in, and I chose not to because I understood that there was a section of my audience that probably didn't agree with me politically. But here is what I want to say for those of you that think that I am too much of this leftist, libtard, snowflake, however you want to put it. When it comes to issues of social injustice and police brutality, there is no left or right. There is no red or blue. It is right versus wrong. And if those of you interpret my stance on social justice issues and fighting racial inequality and fighting against police brutality... If you think that's a political issue, you are so dead wrong. But you and a lot of society have turned it into a political issue. Don't tell me I'm being too political when I'm talking about social justice issues. That is not a political issue. That is a human rights issue. I want to stick to baseball on this show as much as possible. But what I've been doing a responsible job if when you have 
Six Major League Baseball teams protest their games, then followed by another seven games the following night. Do you really think that I'm going to stay silent on that and act like it's not happening if I'm doing the recap? Oh, there was this team and this team and that team and that team decided not to play because they're protesting racial inequality. I can't just blow over that. But again, my point in opening the show like this and to give the clarification is this. Look, you may listen to me and you may have a different political stance than me. That's fine. The First Amendment of the United States Constitution allows us freedom of speech, okay? That is guaranteed by the Constitution of anybody that lives in this country. And last time I looked, any opinion piece on radio, on a podcast, on television, on the web is permitted under the First Amendment. But I do want to stress this. There are certain fundamental things about being a human being and about being a good citizen that we all must abide by. And that's why I thought it was such a big issue to talk about the players protesting against racial inequality and against police brutality and fighting for social justice in the wake of Jacob Blake getting shot seven times in the back and then having a 17-year-old domestic terrorist come in and shoot protesters. Our African-American brothers and sisters are hurting right now. And if you cannot understand that hurt and understand the history of what it's been like to be black in the United States of America, then I implore you to educate yourself on the history of this country. I implore you to educate yourself on what it took for African Americans to be free citizens in this country. Educate yourself on the civil rights movement and what blacks had to go through in the South for the majority of the 20th century, and then come back to me and tell me that I'm being too political. This is a human rights issue. This is an issue about bringing equality to our society. And if it's an issue in regards to what's going on in Major League Baseball, I'm going to talk about it. But I just, I took a little bit longer on this than I wanted to, but I want to make my point clear. Fighting for social justice for racial equality, for better policing, is not and should not be a political issue. It is a human rights issue. I hope you understand that. And I will continue to end every show saying Black Lives Matter because it's damn important to me and it's damn important to my African-American friends. Okay? Now let's move on to some baseball. We've got trades to talk about today. Oh, do we have a lot of trades. Before I go into the weekend whip around, I want to go through a couple of significant trades that have occurred over the last few days. And granted, by the time you're listening to this, trades may have already happened. On Tuesday, we're going to do our normal recap on Tuesday, but I'm almost thinking about putting out two separate episodes on Tuesday a trade deadline episode, and an episode that is specifically in regards to the game recap so that you can listen to both. In fact, I pretty much know that I'm going to do that at this point. So be prepared for two separate podcasts coming out on Tuesday morning. We're, it's going to be the first time we've ever done this, that we're going to have two podcasts recorded back-to-back, released at the same time, and ready for you to listen to all at once. This is going to be a fascinating trade deadline because people thought coming into the season, you only have 60 games, 
And basically, you only have one month before you have to make decisions on players and decisions on trades. So let's go back and look through a couple of the big trades that have happened thus far. So the first trade that we saw was the Phillies acquiring Brandon Workman and Heath Hembree from the Red Sox for Nick Pavetta and Connor Seabold. Look, the Boston Red Sox have no chance to win this year. More than likely, they are going to be the worst team in the American League when it is all said and done. So Boston's trying to sell off any assets possible to get something in return to help build for the future. Workman and Hembree allow the Phillies to build up some depth in their bullpen. I like the move. Also the same day, the Phillies picked up David Hale from the Yankees for Addison Russ. Again, Hale, a 4A guy, 32 years old. He's been solid the last couple of seasons. The Yankees DFA'd Hale when they brought a role as Chapman back, so I think a good move for the Phillies. Get some bullpen depth and not really give up a whole lot for it. Addison Russ was in double-A last year. August 23rd, Giants acquire infielder Daniel Robertson from the Rays for cash. So this is interesting. Robertson was part of the Rays' 60-man player pool. He didn't appear in a big league game in 2020, so he got DFA'd from the player pool, and he was added to the player pool and the 40-man roster after the Giants DFA'd Hunter Pence. So, To me, this is just another Farhan Zaidi move to create depth amongst position players. You know, Farhan Zaidi was the guy that picked up Max Muncy and Chris Taylor for the Dodgers. Daniel Robertson is very much that type of a player. Now we go to the Toronto Blue Jays, and they make two trades with the Seattle Mariners. So they pick up Dan Vogelbach from the Mariners for cash, and Vogelbach was an all-star last year. He hit .238, but he had 21 homers. So he's a left-handed power bat. He's a really big guy. I'm guessing he probably weighs about 260. But Vogelbach really struggled. And the Mariners committed a lot of money to Evan White in the offseason. White, who had never played a big league game, they gave him a six-year, $24 million contract to be their first baseman of the future. Based on the way that things had shaken out for Vogelbach and based on how he had been hitting, he was not going to have a chance to play the field anymore. First base is Evan White's. And I don't think that the Mariners would have signed Evan White to that type of an extension if Vogelbach had been a more successful player on a consistent basis when he was acquired from the Cubs a few years ago. But Vogelbach basically fell out of favor, and he struggled mightily. He hit 094 with two homers and a 476 OPS. So they DFA him. And now Toronto has another power-hitting first base type to go behind Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Roddy Telez. Really, a low-cost acquisition for Toronto, and the Mariners get some cash back for a guy that they were going to get rid of anyway. Now, the Mariners also, three days later, on August 27th, dealt Taiwan Walker to the Blue Jays in exchange for a player to be named later or cash. By the way, that's my favorite guy, player to be named later. He's involved in a lot of trades. Yes, I know, I know. Old baseball joke. Give me a break for it. Taiwan Walker is a guy that really nobody was interested in before the start of spring training, and the Mariners decided that a guy that they had traded to Arizona in exchange for Mitch Hanniger, they figured they'd bring him back. They had history with the guy, and they figured give him a flyer, so they didn't really pay him that much money. They gave him a $2 million contract to come in and pitch for Seattle. 
He makes five starts with the Mariners in this shortened season, pitches 27 innings, allows 12 earned runs, so that's a flat four ERA, walks only eight, strikes out 25. So figure, somebody that needs a starting pitcher, he's worth it. And Toronto, playing as well as they are, and given the expanded playoffs, figured another low-cost acquisition. And Toronto needs starting pitching. They have three starters currently on the IL, Matt Shoemaker, top prospect Nate Pearson, and Trent Thornton. So Toronto needed a starting pitcher, and Walker gives them a low-cost option that's going to improve their rotation depth. Toronto is going to be one of those teams that's going to be on the outside looking in in regards to the playoffs, but they've got a really talented squad of position players. The key is, are they going to have enough pitching to stay in the race to the end? We're now more than halfway done with the season. Taiwan Walker is going to be the guy that's going to end up making probably four to five starts for the Blue Jays, and hopefully, if he pitches well, Toronto will find themselves in the playoffs in 2020. Really a surprise because the Blue Jays have basically been around 500, and they're hoping that Walker can be an effective fourth or fifth starter once the rest of their rotation gets healthy. So I really like the move. Also the same day, the Tampa Bay Rays acquired Brett Phillips, an outfielder from the Royals, in exchange for shortstop prospect Lucius Fox. No Batman jokes, please. This is a trade that I think worked out for both sides because the Royals, they liked Brett Phillips, but Brett Phillips at this point is kind of a third to fourth outfielder. Brett Phillips is not a guy that has the same prospect status that he once did. He's a great clubhouse guy, but Brett Phillips has been traded three times now, from the Rangers to the Brewers, from the Brewers to the Royals, and now from the Royals to the Rays. And the Royals weren't winning anything this year, and Brett Phillips was not going to be a big part of their future. Meanwhile, for Tampa Bay, a team that has been ravaged by injuries, this provides outfield depth. So, again, another low-cost move. And for Tampa, they have Willie Adamas playing shortstop right now. They have Wander Franco in the system, who's the top prospect in all of baseball. Lucius Fox has the chance to be a very good player, originally a part of the Giants organization. He came to Tampa in the trade that sent Evan Longoria to San Francisco. So the next trade, and this is an interesting trade because it addresses a specific need. August 28th, the White Sox acquire outfielder Gerard Dyson from the Pirates for international signing pool money. So you see a lot of these international signing pool trades, and I want to explain exactly what this is. When you give up international signing pool money, you're not actually giving them any money. But basically, every team is limited to a certain amount of money that they're able to use when they go out and they participate in the international free agent signing period. So when teams trade away signing pool money, they're basically giving other teams the opportunity to spend more while taking away the opportunity for them to spend more. So you actually saw with the Mariners a couple of years ago that they were trading away high A and double A prospects for signing pool money so that they could go sign Shohei Otani. One guy that was involved in one of those trades is Anthony Masevich, who was traded to the Rays. Now, the Mariners did not sign Otani, and the next season they actually reacquired Anthony Masevich from the Rays, and now he is in the big league bullpen with the Seattle Mariners. The White Sox aren't going to spend a whole lot of money in the international market. They've already done a ton in regards to their current international market, 
Luis Robert being their big fish. Gerard Dyson addresses a defensive need because the White Sox offense is pretty much set. Defensively, outside of Luis Robert, they're pretty weak in the outfield. Dyson is above average speed. He's a guy that can steal a lot of bases, plays good fundamental baseball. And look, Eloy Jimenez is a disaster in left field, and Nomar Mazzara is really not very good in right field. You don't want to sacrifice Mazzara's bat or Eloy's bat to put Adam Engel or Nicky Delmonico in there. So already Gerard Dyson's a better option offensively than probably Nicky Delmonico. Adam Engel's actually been pretty solid for the White Sox when he's been in the lineup. And Dyson can come in as a late-inning defensive replacement for either Eloy or Mazzara. More than likely, he's going to come in for Eloy Jimenez because Dyson doesn't have a strong arm. But a versatile outfielder who you're not going to ask to do too much. You get him from a team that was probably going to get rid of him anyway. The Pittsburgh Pirates are going to probably end up being the worst team in the National League. So parting with a veteran like Gerard Dyson isn't really going to hurt them a whole lot. And look, Dyson only has 51 at-bats this year, so it's not like he's going to be relied upon offensively. It just provides depth for a team that's looking to make a big push. So I really like the move of the White Sox acquiring Dyson. Now we get into a move that I really think is intriguing because of not only the players involved, but the teams involved. The Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim traded Tommy LaStella to the Oakland A's for Franklin Barreto. Now this is an interesting deal to me because I thought that the A's were still heavily invested in the future of Franklin Barreto. Apparently I was wrong. Franklin Barreto was acquired from the Toronto Blue Jays along with Kendall Graveman and I think one other player in exchange for Josh Donaldson, which at the time, me being a huge lifelong A's fan, broke my heart because Josh Donaldson was coming off a near MVP year and then he ends up winning the MVP the next year and the A's are last place after being in the playoffs for three straight years. Franklin Barreto just never really broke in with the A's. He had just 10 at-bats this season in 15 games, used more of as a defensive replacement, and he just never seemed to latch on for a full-time stint in Oakland. His best year came in 2018 when he played in 32 games, hit five homers, drove in 16 runs. Barreto at one point was the top prospect in the A's system but a change of scenery might have been necessary. Meanwhile, Tommy LaStella gives the A's a very key piece in terms of versatility because LaStella has been playing a lot of first base for the Angels. The A's obviously want to give Matt Olson a couple of days off here and there because their other first baseman is Mark Canna, and the A's right now don't have enough outfield depth to take Canna out of the outfield. So they basically picked up another first baseman, He can also play second base as well, so you've got a guy that can fill in at second base if you want to give Tony Kemp a day off, and that allows the A's to give Marcus Simeon a day off if need be, because then you can shift Tony Kemp or Chad Pinder to shortstop, or even put LaStella at third base if you need to give Matt Chapman a day off. So Tommy LaStella can play all over the infield. He had his best season as a big leaguer last year. 
He was an all-star for the Angels. He had 295 with 16 homers and 44 driven in. This season, he's at 273. He's got a 371 on base percentage, something Billy Bean loves. I think that this is a really good deal for the A's. Lestella just makes a really good team just that much better. And the final trade that we're going to go over is a trade that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense for both sides. The Padres picked up Trevor Rosenthal from the Royals in exchange for Edward Oliveris and a player to be named later. Here's why the trade makes sense. Rosenthal was released twice last year, had a 13 ERA, turns into the team's closer, and then all of a sudden just comes back to life, refines his command, and becomes that shutdown guy at the back end of the Royals' bullpen. However, two things. The Royals aren't winning anything this year. They're probably not going to be winning anything next year, although their rotation is starting to come into place, getting Bubich and Singer up, and you're also going to have in the future Lynch and Coar and Jonathan Bolin possibly, and Asa Lacey. Don't forget Alec Marsh, who was a second-round pick last year. On the position side, you've got Bobby Witt Jr., who is poised to be the shortstop of the future, which means the newly acquired Lucius Fox could end up being at second base or third base. The Royals are going to be really good for a long time once all of their young talent rises to the top. Trevor Rosenthal was not going to be a part of that future. But in exchange, they pick up a guy in Edward Olivares who is a more projectable guy at this point than the guy they just traded away in Brett Phillips, and Edward Olivares has a chance to be a franchise player. Brett Phillips was not that guy. So for the sake of the future of the Royals, it makes a lot of sense. For the Padres, they are trying to win now. They've got enough talent on their big league roster to where Olivares was not going to be a guy that necessarily fit in in the short term. Maybe in the long term, but not in the short term. The Padres have really struggled at the back end of their bullpen. Kirby Yates has not been what he was last year. Drew Pomeranz has been shaky. Their bullpen is just not what people thought it was going to be, so they needed a stabilizing force. And I think Trevor Rosenthal is going to end up being that guy. Now... With that being said, one guy isn't going to fix their troubles, but San Diego is clearly the second-best team in the National League West. Now, if you listened to a podcast two weeks ago, I would have said it's the Colorado Rockies. I don't know what happened to the Colorado Rockies. They've all of a sudden just hit the tank, but I think that San Diego has just got lightning in a bottle right now in terms of their lineup. Fernando Tatis Jr., I think we'll win the NL MVP. Manny Machado is having a fantastic second year in San Diego. Everything is just clicking right now for the Padres. They've got a center fielder in Trent Grisham, who I don't think the Brewers should have given up, but you can't cry over spilt milk now. And San Diego just needs a couple more bullpen pieces. They may try and trade for a starter. So to segue... The starting pitcher that is going to be the most coveted is Texas's Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn's a guy that I don't think is long for the job in Texas. He's been one of the best pitchers in the American League so far this season. You're going to look at the A's, the White Sox, and the Padres, all contenders who need starting pitching as teams that are going to go after Lance Lynn. Now, I don't think the A's are going to get him because I just don't see Texas trading with Oakland. That's just me. I don't see that happening. The White Sox, meanwhile, I could see that. The White Sox might have to give up a significant prospect, 
But if the White Sox want a guy that's going to solidify a rotation that has already seen guys go down due to injury, most notably Carlos Rodon, I think that it's worth the gamble if you give up the right prospect, which means you're not giving up Andrew Vaughn. If you give up Andrew Vaughn, you've given up way too much for potentially a half-season of Lance Lynn. I got to look up real quick. I'm not sure what Lance Lynn's contract situation is, but I still don't think Lance Lynn is the guy that's going to stay for a long period of time. So Lance Lynn is actually signed through the end of the 2021 season. So if you're picking up Lance Lynn, you're picking him up for a season plus. And I think that if you still think that at age 34 next year that Lance Lynn is going to be an effective pitcher, which this year he's 4-0 and with a 1.59 ERA, I say you go for it. But again, what is the price to which you net Lance Lynn? And then you take on the $10 million of his contract next year. Johnny Cueto is also in the same boat. But I think that the situation regarding Johnny Cueto versus the situation regarding Lance Lynn are a lot different. And here's why. Cueto has not been nearly as good. He's had some solid starts this year, but Cueto's got an ERA of 5-4. He's pitched 35 innings. Again, seven starts put in the Gabe Kapler effect. But Johnny Cueto is a guy that, at his best, is one of the most effective starting pitchers in all of baseball. Johnny Cueto had Tommy John surgery after the 2017 season, or rather, shortly into the 2018 season, missed most of 2018, and then came back for the back end of 2019. And in 2020, he's an above-average starting pitcher making a significant amount of money, over $21 million a year. He signed a six-year, $130 million contract prior to the 2016 season. It expires after 2021, and he has a team option for 2022. So basically, if you're picking up Johnny Cueto, you're picking him up for the stretch run and for all of next year at $21.5 million. What team is going to be willing to pay $21.5 million? Which, in my opinion, is why the Giants will give him up for less because you're going to have to pay more to take him on. I think the Chicago White Sox would pay that because Edwin Encarnacion is going to come off their books next year, and Encarnacion, I think, is making $10 million this year. So the White Sox would be willing to increase their payroll for one year of Johnny Cueto. They've certainly done so before with somebody like a James Shields. Ugh, don't remind me of that. The Oakland A's, I don't think, are going to be willing to pay somebody $21.6 million unless they ask the Giants to pick up maybe half of that contract. But that also means that the A's are going to have to give up a heavier prospect if they make the Giants take on money. The Giants' whole objective in the rebuild from Farhan Zaidi is to dump as much money of old contracts as they can. What team is going to be willing to say, hey, I'll take $21.6 million of Johnny Cueto in 2021 so I can have an experienced starter who's been to a World Series. He was there with the Royals in 2015. He won a World Series of the Royals in 2015, has been in the playoffs with the Reds multiple times and with the Giants once. You want a guy like him in the postseason. Who is going to step up and pay that kind of money for a guy that isn't what he used to be? It's not going to be the A's. I don't think at this point, given the amount of money they've committed to guys like Eric Hosmer and Manny Machado, 
that it's going to be the Padres. So what other team is going to be willing to pay that kind of money for a Johnny Cueto? I can think of maybe the St. Louis Cardinals. The Giants certainly aren't going to trade with the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the Dodgers have got great young pitching. They don't need to trade for anybody. If I look at the National League East, I mean, maybe they can dump him off on the Braves. I don't know if the Braves want to pay that kind of money. I'm not sure what kind of money the Phillies are going to want to pay. I'm sure the Marlins sure as hell don't want to take on $21.6 million for one year of Johnny Cueto. If I'm looking American League, I mean, do the Yankees really want to do that? Do the Rays? I mean, the Rays are not going to take on that kind of money. I would say Houston, because Houston definitely needs a starting pitcher. Or Johnny Cueto is just going to write out his contract with the Giants, or at least write out the rest of this year, and then when he's an impending free agent after 2021, he'll become more enticing on the trade market next year. So as the old saying goes, it all comes out in the wash, and I think that that's exactly what's going to happen with this trade deadline. There could be some teams that go very aggressive. There could also be some teams that decide it's not worth it for us to go for it this year. So I think that there's going to be a big balance and some tough decisions the teams are going to have to make. But on Monday's episode, we're going to go through all the trades and we're going to figure out exactly how to make sense of what happened and how this leaves the competitive balance of the league moving forward. And I think that's going to be a whole heck of a lot of fun. So because we've taken up so much time talking about trade deadline projections, Let's go into a quick version of the Weekend Whip Around. So I'm going to do the Whip Around a little bit different than I have in the past. Since we're going over two days worth of games, I'm going to do it by series instead of by day. So we're going to start off with the Mets and the Yankees series. They played a doubleheader on Friday. Mets win the first game 6-4 over the Yankees. Lockett with the win. He is 1-0. Green with the loss 2-2. Diaz with the save, his second. Homers in the game for the Mets. Pete Alonzo, his sixth. Dominic Smith, his seventh. Pete Marisnik, or rather Jake Marisnik, his first. For the Yankees, Clint Frazier hit his third. In game two of the twin bill, the Mets beat the Yankees 4-3. Hughes with the win, 1-1. Chapman with the loss, he is 0-1. Mets won the game on a walk-off two-run homer from Ahmed Rosario, his third of the year. No other homers were hit in the ball game. On Saturday, the Yankees edged the Mets 2-1. Chapman gets the win. He is 1-1. Batances, the former Yankee, takes the loss. He is 0-1. Homers in the game for the Yankees. Luke Voigt, his 12th. Wilson Ramos, his second for the Mets. Worth noting that the Yankees, had they lost this game, would have had their first eight-game losing streak since, I believe, 1995. That is incredible. So the Yankees snap a seven-game losing streak with the win. Yankees are 17-13. Mets are 15-17. Our next series we'll go to is the Tigers and the Twins. Now, this actually was a doubleheader scheduled for yesterday, or rather Friday, I should say. Both games were rained out. Tigers end up sweeping the Twins in the Twin Bill, 8-2 in Game 1, 
Boyd, the winner, he's one and four. Dobnak, the loser, he is five and two. Dobnak got beat around the bush. Twelve hits allowed by him in four and a third inning. Six runs, two walks, and one strikeout. There was only one homer hit in the game. It was Nelson Cruz. The boomstick hit his twelfth. We go to the second game of the twin bill. Tigers win again, doubling up the Twins 4-2. Scooble gets his first Major League win. He is 1-1. One one. Duffy takes the loss for Minnesota. He is 1-1. One one. Soto the save for Detroit, his first. Homers in the game. Jaime Candelario, his third for the Tigers. Miguel Cabrera, his fifth. And then the boomstick hits his 13th for Minnesota. I'll tell you what, for the Bomba squad, when they're not hitting homers, they are not a very good baseball team. Twins are 20 and 14, Tigers are 15 and 16. Next series, we go back to the East for the Blue Jays and the Orioles. On Friday, Blue Jays edge the Orioles 5 to 4. Dolis the win, 1-1. One one. Salser the loss, 1-3. Toronto wins the game on a Randall Gritchick walk-off two-run homer in the bottom of the 10th inning. That was after Hanser Alberto gave Baltimore the lead with a single in the top of the 10th inning. Other homers in the game, Vlad Guerrero Jr., his fifth. Teoscar Hernandez, his 12th for Toronto. Renato Nunez hit his seventh for Baltimore. Gritchick's home run for the Blue Jays was his ninth of the season. On Saturday, Toronto shut out Baltimore 5 to nothing. Taiwan Walker gets the win. We just talked about him in his first start as a Blue Jay. He is 3-2, six innings of shutout baseball for Taiwan Walker. That is good to see. Alex Cobb takes the loss. He is 1-3, no save in the game. No homers in the game either. Toronto had nine hits. Baltimore had just five. Blue Jays are 17 and 14. Orioles are 14 and 18. Now down to the Sunshine State for the Rays and the Marlins. Yes, Tampa is in first place in the AL East despite having seven pitchers on the IL at the moment. The Rays are absolutely decimated by injury, but they are finding a way to win ball games. On Friday, 2-0 winners over the Marlins in Miami. Tampa got the win from Peter Fairbanks out of the bullpen. He is 1-1. The loss goes to Richard Blyer. He is 1-1. The save to Diego Castillo, his second. Marlins had just five hits in the ball game. Game was scoreless until the top of the eighth inning when the Rays scored a run on a Yandy Diaz single and then added on a run in the top of the ninth on a Michael Perez single. Rays got the win yesterday 4-0 over Miami. This time it was a scoreless ball game until the top of the sixth inning. Rays scored one in the sixth, one in the seventh, and two in the eighth. Miami was held to just three hits in the game. Fleming the win. He is 2-0. He goes five and a third of shutout baseball. So good to see the top left-handed pitching prospect in the Rays organization pitching well. My buddy Pablo Lopez takes the loss. He's 3-2. He gives up two runs on six hits over seven innings, no walks and five strikeouts. No save in the ball game. No homers in the game as well. Marlins, as we said, held to just three hits. Tampa Bay is 23-11. Miami is 14-14. Our next stop, the Phillies and the Braves on Friday. Phillies beat Atlanta 7-4. Parker the win, 2-0. Melanson takes the loss. He is 2-1. 
This was a 4-4 game going into the bottom of the 11th inning when Scott Kingery hit a three-run walk-off homer his first of the year. Other homers in the game, Ender Enciarte for Atlanta, his first, Austin Riley for Atlanta, his fifth, Gene Segura for Philadelphia, his fourth, and Andrew McCutcheon for Philly, his third. On Saturday, Phillies edge the Braves 4-1. Eflin the win, he is 2-1. Tomlin the loss, he is 1-2. Workman picks up his seventh save for the Phillies. Fourth homer of the year for Reese Hoskins, a three-run shot in the fifth inning. And for Atlanta, their only run came on a Johan Camargo homer, his fourth of the year. Phillies are 14-14. Braves are 18-14. Our next stop is to St. Louis for the Cardinals and the Indians. A rough weekend so far for the home team. Indians beat St. Louis 14-2 on Friday night. Hill, the winner, he is 1-0. Ponce de Leon, the loser, he is 0-3. Plutko, the save, his first Indians had 20 hits in the ball game. They scored four in the first, two in the second, two in the fifth, four in the sixth, and two in the seventh. Homers for the Indians, there were a lot of them. From Mil Reyes, his seventh. Carlos Santana, his fourth. Tyler Naquin, his first. For St. Louis, Dexter Fowler hit his third homer of the year. And by the way, you're probably wondering, how does Adam Plutko get a save in a 12-run margin of victory? Well, the rule is, if you finish the ball game and you are not the winning pitcher, but the team wins the game and you pitch at least three innings, you get credit for a save. Yes, it is a very stupid rule. On Saturday, it was a tighter ball game. This baby went to 12 innings, but with a 1-1 score in the top of the 12th inning, Tyler Naquin doubled home the go-ahead run in Mike Freeman, and the Indians beat the Cardinals 2-1. Nick Whitgren, the winner, he is 2-0. Alex Reyes, the loser, 1-1. Brad Hand picks up his 10th save. Just one homer in the game. It came in the top of the first, the seventh of the year for Jose Ramirez. Cleveland is 21-12, St. Louis is 11-13. We head back to the Eastern Division for the Nationals and the Red Sox. Washington 10-2 winners on Friday. Scherzer the win, he is 3-1. He goes six innings of one-run baseball with 11 strikeouts. Perez the loser, he is 2-4. Homers in the game, Juan Soto his ninth, Howie Kendrick his second, Josh Harrison his second. No homers in the game for Boston. On Saturday, Red Sox edge Washington 5-3. Brazier the win, 1-0. Sanchez the loss, 1-4. Matt Barnes picks up his third save for Boston. Bogarts and Pilar homered. Bogarts, a three-run shot, his seventh. Pilar, a solo shot, his fourth. No homers for Washington. Nationals, the defending World Series champions, they are really struggling in this shortened season Halfway through, they are 12 and 18. Boston is 11 and 22. Back to the Central for the White Sox and the Royals. It was an exciting ball game on Friday. White Sox give up the lead in the top of the ninth inning to make it five to five. For the Royals, Michael Franco tied it with an RBI double, and then Yasmani Grandal with a walk-off homer in the bottom of the ninth to give the White Sox a 6-5 win. Grandal, it was his fourth homer. Jorge Soler hit his eighth for Kansas City. Luis Robert hit his eighth for the White Sox, and Whit Merrifield hit his sixth for 
Kansas City. Also, Eloy Jimenez hit his 11th of the year for Chicago. Alex Colome the win, 1-0. Ian Kennedy the loss, 0-2. On Saturday, a different story. Royals scored five runs in the seventh inning to take a 3-2 White Sox lead and turn it into a 7-3 White Sox deficit. Royals win by a 9-6 final. Newberry the win, 1-0. Birdie the loss, 0-1. Han the save, his first. Homers in the game for Kansas City. Alex Gordon, his fourth. Ryan O'Hearn, his second. Ryan McBroom, his fifth. Michael Franco, his sixth. For Chicago, just one homer in the game. It was a parrot party. Edwin Encarnacion hits his sixth. White Sox are 20 and 13. Royals are 13 and 20. We'll stay in Chicago, although we'll venture to Cincinnati for the Cubs and the Reds. So there was a doubleheader on Saturday and a single game on Friday. Reds win 6-5 on Friday. Winning pitcher Tyler Malley, 1-1. Kyle Hendricks, the loss, 3-4. Iglesias, the win. I believe it is Rafael Iglesias. Raysel Iglesias, his fourth. Homers in the game for the Cubs. Anthony Rizzo, his sixth. Kyle Schwarber, his seventh. Wilson Contreras, his fourth. Jason Hayward, his third. For the Reds, Eugenio Suarez, his seventh. Jesse Winker, his ninth. And Freddie Galavis, his sixth. On Saturday, game one of the doubleheader went to the Cubs, 3-0. The win for Hugh Darvish, 6-1. Trevor Bauer, the loss, he is 3-2. Jeremy Jeffress, the save, his fourth. Homers in the game for Chicago, Anthony Rizzo hit two, both of them against Trevor Bauer. No homers for Cincinnati. Rizzo now has eight on the season for the Cubs. Hugh Darvish went six shutout innings for Chicago. Cubs had a chance for the doubleheader sweep, but Craig Kimbrell happened as the Reds come back. They walk it off on the Cubs in game two, six to five, the final. A wild pitch by Kimbrell brings home the winning run. The tying run scored on an Aristides Aquino single with one out against Kimbrell. The winner, Kunell, 1-0. The loss, Kimbrell, 0-1. Everybody thought Craig Kimbrell might have been fixed. He goes two-thirds of an inning. He allows two runs on one hit. He walks three, strikes out two. Homers in the game for Chicago, Ian Happ, his seventh. David Bodie, his fifth. For Cincinnati, Joey Votto, his fourth. Kurt Casale, his fifth. And Jesse Winker, his tenth. Cubs are 19 and 14. Reds are 15 and 18. We'll now head down to Houston for the A's and the Astros. They actually protested the game on Friday in honor of Jackie Robinson's birthday. And by the way, I'm going to get to Jackie Robinson in tomorrow's episode because Chadwick Boseman died on Friday, and I think it's really important that we talk about that. But I'd rather do that on a Monday episode as opposed to a Sunday episode because, let's just face it, you guys don't listen on Sundays. If you've listened this far, you'll actually found out that I said that. So the A's and the Astros did not play on Friday. They split, or rather, the Astros sweep a doubleheader against Oakland. They beat the A's 4-2 in Game 1. McCullers the win. He is 3-2. Bassett the loss. He is 2-2. Presley the save, his fifth. 
Kyle Tucker, his sixth homer of the year for Houston. Josh Reddick, his second for the Astros. In game two, the Astros double up the A's again, 6-3 the final this time. Greinke the win, 2-0. Montas the loss, 2-3. Presley actually pitches both games of the doubleheader, which is very rare to see. He gets his sixth save. For the A's, Ramon Laureano, his fourth homer. Matt Chapman, his tenth. For Houston, George Springer hits his fifth. A's are 22-12. Astros are 19-14. Houston now is just two and a half games behind Oakland for first place in the AL West. Our next game, we'll go back to the Central for the Pirates and the Brewers. Saturday's game was a lot more interesting than Friday's, and I'll explain why. Brewers win in handily fashion. I don't even know if that's the right way to put it, but they handle the Pirates 9-1 at Miller Park. Corbin Burns the win, he's 1-0. Derek Holland the loss, he is 1-2. For the Brewers, homers for Jed Jerko, his fourth. Ryan Braun, his second. Jacob Nottingham, his first. Should also mention that Jerko hit two homers in the game, so he has five on the season. For Pittsburgh, JT Riddell, or Riddle, hits his first homer of the year. So, Saturday's game. This is fascinating. Josh Hader has not given up a hit the entire season yet, okay? The whole year, Josh Hader has not given up a hit. He comes in in a safe situation, top of the ninth inning, with the Brewers up 5-4, to four, okay? 5-4, to four, the Brewers are up going into the top of the ninth with their stud closer. Josh Hader comes in. He walks five. He walks five. He doesn't allow a hit. He eventually gets pulled. I don't know what happened to Josh Hader, but Devin Williams comes in, finishes off the inning, and then Eric Sogard hits a two-run walk-off homer after Hader just goes space cadet for some reason. So the Brewers win 7-6. Milwaukee 15-17. Pittsburgh a major league worst 9-21. The winner, Devin Williams. The loser, Rodriguez, Richard Rodriguez, he is 0-2. Homers in the game for Milwaukee, Eric Sogard, his first, the walk-off blast. Orlando Arcia, his second. No other homers, or check that, one other homer. Christian Yelich, his eighth for the Brewers. For Pittsburgh, their only homer came courtesy of Josh Bell, his third. Now we'll head down to Texas for the Dodgers and the Rangers on Friday night. It was a Texas two-step. Rangers with the 6-2 win over the Dodgers. Hernandez, Jonathan Hernandez, his fourth win. He is 4-0. Jake McGee, the loss. He is 2-1. Homers in the game for Texas. Derek Dietrich, his second. That was the only homer in the game for Texas. There were no homers in the game for Los Angeles. It was a 2-2 tie going to the bottom of the seventh. Texas scored four in the inning. On Saturday, the Dodgers fought back. They win 7-4 over the Rangers. Blake Trinan the win. He is 3-1. Lance Lynn the loss. He is 4-1, so his first loss of the year. Kenley Jansen the save, his ninth. Homers in the game. L.A. had Cody Bellinger hit his ninth. Max Muncie hit his ninth. For Texas, Leody Tavares hit his first. Ronald Guzman hit his first. Dodgers, first team to 25 wins. They are 25-10. Texas is 12-20.
We go now to Colorado for the Rockies and the Padres on Friday night. It was all San Diego 10-4. Rockies got up 4-0 in the bottom of the first inning. San Diego took the lead with a four-run top of the sixth inning. Padres scored one in the fourth, three in the fifth, and four in the sixth. Zach Davies with his fifth win. He is 5-2. Jeff Hoffman takes the loss. He is 2-1. Homers in the game for San Diego. There were none of them. Matt Kemp hit his third of the year for Colorado. On Saturday, it was a different story as the Rockies walked off on the Padres 4-3 thanks to a Daniel Murphy walk-off single. The winner, Daniel Bard, he is 2-2. The loser, Craig Stammen, he is 3-2. No homers were hit in the game between the two clubs. Rockies are 17-16. Padres are 20-15. We send it now to Anaheim for the Angels and the Mariners. It was all Angels in this series. Angels win 3-2 on Friday night. Haney the winner, 2-2. Marjavicius gets the loss. He is 1-2. Buttry the save, his fourth. Homers in the game, none for Seattle. Mike Trout hits his 11th for Anaheim. And by the way, Albert Pujols is still waiting to hit his 600 and 60th career home run, so we will let you know when that happens. Did it happen today? No, it did not, but we will let you know that the Angels pounded the Mariners on Saturday 16-3. The winner, Dylan Bundy, he is 4-2. The loss, Justice Sheffield, he is 2-3. Angels are 12-22. Mariners are 13-22. Homers in the game for Anaheim. Joe Adele hit his first two career home runs, one off of Justice Sheffield, one off of Fletcher. Mike Trout hit his 12th homer of the year. Shed Long hit his third of the year for Seattle. Finally, we'll give you the Giants and the Diamondbacks from down in the desert. Arizona wins on Friday night, 7-4. Diamondbacks get the win from Zach Gallen. He is 1-0. He goes seven innings of one-run baseball. He has been great. And by the way, if Arizona is willing to sell, he is going to be a very popular starting pitching target at the trade deadline as well. Tyler Anderson, the loss. He is 1-2. For Arizona, no homers. For the Giants, Evan Longoria hits his fourth. Brandon Crawford hits his third. And our final game recap, Giants over the Diamondbacks 5-2 on Saturday night. Yarlin Garcia, the win, he is 2-1. Luke Weaver, the loss, he is 1-5. It has just been a rough year for Luke Weaver. Tyler Rogers with the save, his second. Homers in the game, Wilmer Flores hits his eighth. Christian Walker hits his fourth. So Diamondbacks are 14-20. Giants are 16-19. That is it for the whip around. We'll give you a quick look now at today's ball games. We will start off by giving you another Yankees and Mets doubleheader. It will be Rick Porcello for the Mets in Game 1, 1-4 one with a 6-4-3 ERA. Seth Lugo will go for the Mets in Game 2, 1-2 with a 2-0-3 ERA. Both games are going to be at Yankees Stadium, although the Mets are going to be the home team for Game 2, Yankees the home team for Game 1. That will get started at 1:05 Eastern Time. Cubs at the Reds at 110 Eastern. Tyler Chatwood 2-2. Two two. 
with a 6.06 ERA goes for the Cubbies. Luis Castillo for the Reds, 0-4 with a 3.62 ERA. 1.10 Eastern time in Detroit. Twins at the Tigers. Kenta Maeda for Minnesota, 4-0 with a 2.21 ERA. Number one overall pick from 2018, Casey Mize for Detroit, 0-1 with an ERA of 7.04. 1.10 Eastern time in Miami. Rays at the Marlins. Blake Snell for Tampa, 2-0 with a 3.04 ERA. Sandy Alcantara for Miami, 1-0 with a 1.35 ERA. Washington is at Boston, 1.35 Eastern time. Nationals at the Red Sox. Austin Voth for Washington, 0-3 with a 6.65 ERA. Zach Godley for the Red Sox, 0-3 with a 7.29 earned run average. A's at the Astros, 1-10 Central Time. Jesus Lazardo for Oakland, 2-1 at 3-7-4. Framber Valdez for Houston, 3-2 with a 2-35. 1-10 Central Time, Royals at the White Sox. Chris Bubich for Kansas City, 0-4-5-9-6 ERA. Dane Dunning for the White Sox. He's making his second start. No record, a 6-23 ERA. 1-10 Central Milwaukee, Stephen Brault for Pittsburgh. 0-1 with a 4-8 ERA. He'll be opposed by Milwaukee's Brandon Woodruff, 2-2 with a 3-19 ERA. 1-15 Central Time in St. Louis, Indians at the Cardinals. Aaron Savali for Cleveland, 3-3 with a 3-15 ERA. Adam Wainwright for St. Louis, 2-0 with a 2-8-8 ERA. Dodgers at the Rangers, 1-35 Central Time. Tony Gonsolin for L.A., he has no record. He has yet to give up an earned run this year, although he has made a couple of starts. Kyle Gibson for Texas, 1-3 with a 5-7-3 ERA. 3.07 Eastern time in Buffalo. Orioles at the Blue Jays. Jorge Lopez for Baltimore, no record in 8-38 ERA. Tanner Roark for Toronto, 2-1 with a 4-9-1 earned run average. 1-10 Mountain time in Colorado. Padres at the Rockies. Chris Paddock for San Diego, 2-3 with a 5-15 ERA. Ryan Castellani for Colorado, 1-1 with a 3-5-4. One ten Pacific time in Anaheim. Mariners at the Angels. Justin Dunn for Seattle, 2-1 with a 5-5-7. Griffin Canning for the Angels, 0-3 with a 4-8-8. One ten Pacific time in Arizona. Giants at the Diamondbacks. It'll be Johnny Cueto for San Francisco, 2-0 with a 5-4 ERA. Taylor Clark for Arizona, 1-0 with a 2-33 ERA. Sunday Night Baseball will be the Braves at the Phillies. Huascar Yanoa for Atlanta, 0-0 with a 4-32 ERA. Jake Arrieta for Philadelphia, 2-3 with a 4-32 ERA. I'm going to wrap the episode up here because we've gone for over 50 minutes at this point. That's pretty darn long considering our standard for these episodes. Enjoy the baseball today, have a great day, and Black Lives Matter.